Psalm 87 can best be described as a hymn of praise for God's city, along with a few other psalms that are scattered throughout the Psalter. And several of these psalms dealing with the city of God are attributed or associated with the sons of Korah, as the superscription in our psalm today indicates. And it's a little bit ambiguous. We know that the sons of Korah are part of a Levitical family, the descendants, in fact, of the rebel Korah who died in the wilderness. And while one part of this family became temple guardians and gatekeepers, another part became the singers and musicians for the temple choir founded under David. But what's not clear is whether the, the, the superscription is trying to indicate that the song that we will read today was composed by the sons of Korah or more likely simply associated with their ministry of song in the temple, this might be the ancient equivalent of attributing to a pop musician a Christmas song that she has made popular but not composed. But another ambiguity with regard to this psalm is the date of its final composition. And because it's not attached in its superscription to a certain historical circumstance, we're left looking for clues in the psalm itself. And we'll talk more about this as we get into it. But one thing to keep in mind as we read through this psalm, that part of the allure and effectiveness of the psalms is that they are timeless. So that whether we are dealing with an original historical circumstance such as David confessing his sin in Psalm 51 or dealing with our own confession of sin in weekly worship, the language that God has given us to express our need for cleansing in the psalms is rather timeless, which is why we proclaim every Sunday, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And the Psalms are also timeless in that through Jesus, they possess multiple layers of fulfillment across redemptive history. That is, because scripture is a story about God's redemption of his people with unfolding patterns of heightened fulfillment, it would make sense that the hymn book of God's Old Testament people would resonate in our day with a particularly gospel-centered and even forward-looking note. And that's exactly what Psalm 87 does for us. So let's read. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, would you open our eyes to the glories of your plan to dwell with your people? And would you redirect our gaze once more this morning on the beauties of your promises to us, that we may once again embrace them by faith? And as your word is preached, would you by your spirit grant us wisdom and understanding that we may be transformed in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. 
Well, we're in the middle of a time of the year when people seem to want to scatter from our city. And I can't imagine why, because the weather here is so pleasant, as you know. But summertime is, is a time to explore other cities. And just this summer, a lot of our members have explored and visited some of the great American cities like Washington, D.C. and New York City. And some of you have even visited some of the great cities of Europe during this summer vacation. I'll tell you, though, as someone who loves cities and has been to, to many of this uh, great country's uh, city, major cities, they're, they're good to visit, but for me, there's no place like home. Other places maybe have more of a wow factor, maybe uh, high temperatures under 115, maybe there's a little more history, but there's no city in the world like Dallas. And you know these things, but in terms of commerce... We know that Dallas is a magnet for Fortune 500 companies. We have 21 of them based here. Dallas, as you know, is a leading city in the healthcare community, boasting some seven major healthcare systems and, and some, some of the best medical education facilities in the world. And our art community is thriving. And one way to measure that is the economic impact of nonprofit arts and culture organizations, which from 2012 to 2017 has been estimated to have grown from $428 million to about $1.4 billion. We're a global city, the 11th most diverse metro area in the U.S. People from all over the world want to live here and work here and raise their families here. And on top of all that, in, in what might be our greatest achievement Did you know the frozen margarita machine was invented here in Dallas? (laughs) The city of Dallas represents some of humanity's finest attempts at productivity and creativity and diversity. And yet, lest we begin to pat ourselves on the back, we need to also remember that each of these categories represents a tension that the global city necessarily entails. Along with our productivity come the tensions of arrogance and the exaltation of man. We need to look no farther than the place called Jerry World to illustrate this. I think you can see it if you look westward. And along with our creativity comes the tension of elitism. Next time you walk around North Park Mall, observe how the art and aesthetic there is intended to convey a sense that this place and its products are only for the elite. Along with our diversity come the tensions of racism and socioeconomic disparity. And Tim Keller points out that these kinds of tensions represent an ultimate tension between the city's God-exalting promise and its man-exalting shadow. What does this tension teach us? It teaches us that while we reside in a world-class city, we are still on a pilgrimage to reach a different one. And because things are so great here in the modern city, especially one as economically prosperous as Dallas, we need to be reminded that we have not yet arrived at our destination. So whether our city means for you a sense of home and family like you've never had before, 
or whether it means for you economic opportunity like you've never seen before, or if it represents for you all the life and vibrancy that your small hometown could never offer, or even if it represents for you a refuge from someone or something back home, there is a far greater city toward which all who are in Christ are journeying. And the whole storyline of Scripture sets our gaze on this city. And I don't know about you, but I need more faith to believe it. And I need my gaze constantly reoriented to the glories of God's city. And that is exactly what this song found in Psalm 87 is intended to do. And so as we reflect on this short song this morning, we come asking this question, what is God's city like? What is God's city like? And the first thing that we know is that God's city is the beloved seat of His presence. The psalm begins rather abruptly in the Hebrew. Literally, His establishment is on the holy mountain. Kind of Kind of an odd way to begin, but the psalmist wants us to understand one thing right off the bat about this city. It was founded by God. And this, of course, causes us to recall the storied history of this place. It was David's capital city, the city of Jerusalem. It was the place to which he brought God's Ark of the Covenant in 1 Samuel chapter 6. And then immediately thereafter, God made a covenant with David to establish his throne forever. But this covenant also included a house for Yahweh to be built by David's son. You may be familiar with the topography of Jerusalem, especially if you've been to the region, as Colin and Mary recently have. But uh, David expanded Jerusalem in his time northward toward Mount Moriah. And because its eastern ridge slopes away southward, the northern part of that ridge is about 250 feet higher than the southeastern hill where the original city of David sat. And Solomon built his temple upon this higher elevation called today the Temple Mount. And it was on this mount that God's glory filled the completed temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, a place for God to dwell among his people. And yet, just three chapters later, Solomon has turned from the Lord and the kingdom is in danger of being ripped apart because of his idolatry. But the Lord makes a stunning claim. Though the kingdom is in danger of being ripped apart from the house of Solomon, the Lord would give one tribe to his son. Why? Yahweh explains in 1 Kings 11, For the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And we begin to see that there's a deep connection between God's covenant with David and his affection for the city of Jerusalem. David brings the ark to the city. God makes a covenant with him. Solomon builds the temple and God's presence fills it. God has made good on his promises. He is fulfilling his covenant. And even when the kingdom is on the brink of being torn into, God promises to preserve his city. And so it's perhaps easier with this background in mind to understand why the psalmist says the Lord, Yahweh, God's covenant name, the Lord 
loves the gates of Zion. Why? Because he established it in his covenant faithfulness. It is the beloved seat of his presence. But what did this verse mean for God's people who sang it after their return from exile? What did it mean for the exiles who returned with Zerubbabel and the, the, the rest of the exiles? And They could look up at the Temple Mount and see nothing but ruins. What did it mean for Ezekiel when he was in exile, who though he was from a priestly family, couldn't get anywhere near the temple from his place in Babylon? Interestingly, God gave Ezekiel a vision of the glory of the Lord departing from the temple in Ezekiel 10, and then later even departing eastward out of the city to rest on the Mount of Olives in chapter 11. And this for Ezekiel was the judgment of God on display in its most dramatic form. God not actually only leaving his chosen place in the temple, but leaving his chosen city. And later in Ezekiel's prophecy, he's given a vision of a restored temple in the future and the return of the glory of the Lord to its place in his city. But Ezekiel doesn't live to see it. And then subsequent generations of God's people return to the land, even working to rebuild the temple. But Old Testament history ends with only a flicker of the hope of the glory that once filled that place. At the end of the book of Nehemiah, you have priests renting out space in the storehouses because God's people have failed to give their tithes and the storehouses remain empty. Where is the glory of the Lord? How could God's people in that community in that day sing this song, Glorious things of you are spoken? They could sing it, and we can sing it today. Because after 400 years of silence and darkness, a great light began to shine when from the Mount of Olives descended the true son of David, who also claimed to be the true temple. And as he rode into the city from the east on a colt, people shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And what did that true son of David do next? He went straight into the temple, overcome with zeal for the glory of his father, and he drove out those who corrupted its worship. How could God's people in the post-exilic community sing this song? Because they knew that God would keep his promises. And we have gotten to see how he does it. His glory has returned In the person of Jesus. It's a glory, as John 1 tells us, that we have all beheld because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. A glory that we already partake in, as the author of Hebrews reminds us, that we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God through Jesus, our covenant mediator, It's a glory that we will one day enjoy in full when He returns. And it's a glory that provides a rightful refuge for His ingathered people. The reason that God's 
city is the beloved seat of his presence is that it is the place where he dwells with his people. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. You've heard from Psalm 48 this morning regarding the walls of Zion and its strength. But the image here is the gates of Zion. And in our day, we think of gates as really only mechanisms to keep someone out. And so is the psalmist here trying to say that the Lord loves the exclusivity of Zion? Actually, no, it's quite the opposite. In ancient times, the gates were the entry points of the city, and they were also the place where commerce and public gathering would happen. And so the Lord loves the gates of Zion, not because of their ability to keep someone out, not only because of that, but because they represent accessibility and vitality to the many new inhabitants of this city. We know this because the psalmist goes on to list God's registry of the Gentile nations from among whom he will call his people. Verse 4, Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. Rahab is a term here that represents the world power of Egypt. And of course you have the mention of Babylon. And and the mention of these two nations, Egypt and Babylon, leads many scholars to think that this psalm was written during a time early in the Neo-Babylonian period when Egypt was Israel's great threat to the south and Babylon their great threat to the north. Or it could be that the psalmist is looking back in redemptive history and listing Israel's most notorious enemies. We know of their history with Israel, excuse me, with Egypt and Babylon. And we also know that since the time they left Egypt under Moses, the Philistines would continue to be a menace in their sojourning and eventual, eventual life in the land. Maybe the psalmist is looking back at Israel's historic enemies and saying that God is doing something even among these evil nations. But then why mention Tyre and Cush? Tyre, an affluent sea power north of Israel. And Cush, this region is identified with the remotest parts of Ethiopia and modern-day Sudan, far from Israel's purview. And so perhaps the psalmist's point here is simply to survey the known world from those closest to home to those far away to the very remotest of nations and note that God will gather his people from the ends of the earth. And what is said about these ingathered peoples? How will they come to be associated with this city, which is the special seat of God's presence? Well, the psalmist tells us, as full citizens. Three times in verses 4 through 6, this refrain comes up, this one was born there. The image is striking. God himself is keeping a registry of his peoples and recording the birth of these foreign peoples in his own city. Certainly a nod, I think, to what God does in the new birth. But the predominant image here in these verses is one of citizenship. God is granting birthrights to his 
ingathered people, treating them as if they were natural-born citizens and therefore granting them refuge in his city, they have full rights to call Zion home. When Alicia and I moved to Florida, we, we often would joke with friends that we, would, we maintained our Texas citizenship so that when the revolution began, we could come home and, and fight for the homeland. Um, and all the while, we were very aware that our, our son was not a native Texan, but thankfully you embraced him on our return. But it did give me great joy upon leaving the hospital a few weeks ago when we brought home our daughter. We were handed some information from the birth certificate office. And on top, the first thing that you see in big, bold letters, and you know this if you've had a child recently, it says, congratulations on your new Texan. I don't know if other states do that, but that is glorious. I just loved, I just loved what that meant, that, that forevermore our baby girl will have the right to brag about the best barbecue and the biggest and best of what our state has to offer. And on a more serious note, some of you know what it feels like to be denied rights because you're away from your home. Some of you knows what it feels like to fight and claw with the system just to do simple things like obtain a driver's license or find gainful employment or enroll in college courses, but citizens are granted full rights in the land to which they are gathered. And this is exactly what the Bible describes as God's redemptive plan for his ingathered people. Ephesians 2, which was read to us earlier, picks up on this important scriptural concept by noting that we, once we, the Gentiles, were separated from God's commonwealth. Strangers to his promises, not citizens of his city, but now in Christ we have been brought near and we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, being built up into a dwelling place for God By the Spirit. This is the unfolding fulfillment of what Psalm 87 hopes for. And what exactly does it mean for us? It means that as citizens of God's city, we find the refuge that we so desperately seek. Let me ask you a question What are you running from? A refugee, as you well know, is someone who has been forced to leave his or her country for fear of war or persecution or some other kind of disaster. And as God gathers us into his commonwealth, we are all running from something. What's the cause of unrest in your story? What is the disaster from which you continue to flee? Is it fear? Is it anxiety? Is it depression? Is it a failing marriage? Death? Loss? These things are real disasters in our lives, but a citizen has been granted refuge from these things. And as Paul makes very clear in Ephesians 2, to be a citizen of God's city is to be a member of his household, a son of Or daughter. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater refuge 
than that. One of the things I appreciate about my own father is that growing up, we always knew that to be a member of his household afforded us certain rights and privileges. And I was a pretty compliant kid for the most part, but I always knew that if I got in trouble, I could call dad. And one particular instance I can remember is perhaps a lesson for you students who are about to obtain your driver's license or just have gotten your driver's license. I, we'd gone to dinner with some extended family in town, and all of the cousins were going to head home together as the parents went out together afterwards. And since I had a newly minted driver's license, I was eager to drive everyone home. And on this occasion, we had parked on a hill at the very outer portion, outer section of a parking lot. And side note, in my defense, I was not the one who parked the car. Um, My father's here today. Maybe he might corroborate this story. But what I failed to realize was that sloping downward with the parking space was a guardrail about 10 inches off the ground. And so as I turned to leave the space, I decorated Dad's car with a new stripe down one side. And I remember being so afraid to call him that I actually took this tack. I I called up Dad and I said, I was like, this is brilliant, by the way. I called him up and said, hey, Dad, did someone hit your car? (laughs) And um, my dad, seeing right through my feeble attempt at self-protection, I think his response was something like, son, you need to hang up the phone, and let's start this conversation over. Um, But of course, the truth came out. And what did my father do? He fixed the car. And he continued being my dad. And he probably made me work it off in the yard or something like that, but... The point is that to be a member of God's household means that we are afforded the rights of sons and daughters. It means that He cannot disown us because He can't disown Himself. It means at times that He will expose us in our attempts at self-protection. But He will do so only as a loving Father who desires to show us more and more of His grace. He will be for His children a refuge even when they fail at it themselves. God's city is the rightful refuge for His ingathered people. And that is why it is also the joyous home for the thirsty. This song of praise for God's city closes with a response to all that has been proclaimed. Because of the glories of God's city and the beauty of His plan to gather in His people, the city's worshipers can't help but proclaim, all my springs are in you. It's an exuberant expression of praise, a lively expression of joy, and the content is simply, all my springs are in you, all of my refreshment comes from you, my thirst is quenched in you, you are the source of life and blessing for me. What a joyful expression. But here's a curious question. To whom or what does the you refer? Are these worshipers proclaiming that the Lord is the fulfillment of their thirst or the city of Zion? Recall that in Ezekiel 43, the prophet is given a vision of the glory of the Lord returning to the temple that we don't see fulfilled in Old Testament history But that's not all Ezekiel's vision 
entails. In fact, as you read through the last several chapters of Ezekiel's prophecy, you begin to get a sense that something is different about this restored temple that Ezekiel is given a vision of. For one thing, its dimensions are different. The whole complex is measured as a perfect cube. And the dimensions work out a little more neatly than they should. And perhaps most notably, there is a river flowing out of the temple. And it flows eastward out of the city and eventually into the Dead Sea, making the salt water fresh and bringing life where there was once death. And everything the river touches thrives. How can this be? What kind of temple is Ezekiel talking about? What kind of city is this? Well, we find out. Because it shows up again at the end of our story. Revelation 21 and 22 describe the new Jerusalem. The heavenly city which comes down to envelop and transform the earth into a dwelling place for God with His redeemed and glorified people. And the Apostle John is given a vision of the temple in that city. And out of the temple flows the river of the water of life. And John describes it like this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You see... Worshippers of God can proclaim of God's city, all my springs are in you, because they know by faith that to be in God's city means nothing less than to be in the presence of the Lamb. There is no city without the Lamb, and there is no spring without the throne from which it issues. And even now on that throne reigns the true Son of David, who, after His resurrection, ascended into heaven, sending us His Holy Spirit as the down payment of our full inheritance with Him when He returns. And on the day that He does, He will proclaim this, Behold, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give to drink from the spring of the water of life without price. Let me ask you another question. Do you thirst? You should. Are you in need of refreshment? Do you long for the source of life and blessing? You should. It's what you were made for. And my guess is that if you're like me, the things that you are seeking refuge from may actually help to expose what it is that you are really thirsting for. Are you seeking refuge from a failing marriage? Maybe your real desire is to be fully known and fully loved. 
Are you seeking refuge from depression? Maybe you're living in the space where between what life ought to be and what it has turned out to be for you. Are you, like me, seeking refuge from the sting of death? Maybe you're thirsty for a place where death has been conquered once for all and there is no more mourning those that we've lost. God's city is the joyous home of the thirsty. Surely by now you know that this incredible little psalm has in view a much higher city than the one that now sits on a hilltop in Jerusalem. And the hopes of God's people since the time of Abraham have looked forward to this heavenly city with great wonder and great faith. The city whose designer and builder is God. Whose productivity comes from the river of life issuing from the throne of God to all the land. And where the labors of our hands will bring forth fruit out of this bountiful recreation and God's sustenance of earth. A city whose diversity will be the culmination of God's plan to unite and grant citizenship to people from all nations. And there will be no more racism, for God's people will be members of one household. In a city whose creativity and culture will be established by the glory of God as their goal rather than the exaltation of man. That sounds like a city worth longing for. But does this mean that we live here in our own city as disinterested and disengaged observers? Actually, no. The whole thrust of Scripture's teaching on our citizenship actually compels us to live here as citizens of God's city in the very places that He has planted us. And as little colonies of heaven, our churches gather and then scatter each week to bring God's glory to bear in all of our spheres of influence. Some of you are educators, and you're bringing glory to God through studying His world and teaching its glories to others. Some of your medical professionals bringing healing and dignity to the body God has so intricately designed for us. Some of you are unemployed and you seek to bring glory to God through the dignity of your diligent search and your faith in Him to provide. You parents teaching your children that there is a good father who loves them and he's at work to dwell with his people even when it seems like he's not. Your vocation, whatever it is, is much more than just a means to earn a living. It is that. But before it's that, it is a way to exalt the God who created you to work and cultivate and it's a way to bring God's rule to bear in your spheres of influence. And so what about our city, the city of Dallas? Is our cause hopeless here? Absolutely not. We are, as it were, dual citizens looking forward to God's city while also seeking the good of the one we now call home. I think our brothers and sisters at For the Nations illustrate this beautifully, serving our community, 
those that God has brought here from around the world, meeting their needs, helping them to adapt and learn about our great city, but then ultimately pointing them to the hope of true refuge in Christ. And if we're all honest with ourselves, we all need to be pointed consistently to this reality. All of us who are in Christ are citizens of God's city. By faith, may we now live in light of its coming. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, would you help us to live here as citizens of your city, that we might be engaged for your good here in the city of Dallas, and that our gaze might be, our hearts might be engaged and encouraged by the glories of your city to come. Help us, O Lord, by faith to believe it. In Jesus' name, amen.